Turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. Over the last 16 verses of 1 Peter 3 and 4, before we come to verses 7 to 11 of chapter 4, I've been preaching to you on the theme of the doctrine of salvation through suffering. We've seen from chapter 3, verse 13, now through verse 6 of chapter 4, that Peter wants his readers to understand that although they are suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they can be confident that through such persecution and uncertainty, they are nevertheless secure in their salvation in Christ. And from all these verses, we have seen the powerful proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Christ, regardless of the circumstances in life that one may find himself. Now, as we come to a new section of Peter's writing about suffering In chapter 4, verse 7, we find ourselves within the context of the doctrine not of salvation, but of sanctification. Specifically, spiritual service. That spiritual service in the midst of this idea of being a suffering Christian. You see, if we don't keep reminding ourselves about the overall context of suffering, as Peter is endeavoring to teach us, we're going to miss the big picture that Peter wants us to know. We're simply, if we're not careful, going to preach and teach about the verses that are marked before us without properly linking up the context of the overall theme in this portion of the book. And as I have said before, In this first section that Peter writes of about suffering, he tells us about salvation. And in this next section, he wants to teach us about serving through suffering. That's our sanctification. And even in a third section, specifically verses 12 to 19, which wraps up this context about suffering, we'll learn even more vital truth about the Christian life through suffering eyes. It could also be said that whereas chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 6 is referring to the Christian and his suffering and its responses to a hostile pagan environment from the outside, verses 7 to 11 of chapter 4 is describing for us how the Christian and his life of suffering is dealing with the body of Christ on the inside. The first section on suffering could be said to be a response to those on the outside, the outside world, the pagans among us. Whereas verses 7 to 11 of chapter 4 talk about suffering and how to respond to believers inside the household of faith. One is a response to those outside the faith. The other is a response inside the household of faith. Peter Peter will turn outward again in verses 12 to 19 of chapter 4. So this is a bit of an interlude which focuses for us on how suffering Christians should treat one another. It's not so much a teaching about how you should respond to the maligning and the criticism that you receive from the outside world, but really how you should respond to fellow believers in the suffering church on the inside. And with these important reminders in mind, let's delve into verses 7 to 11. This morning, we're going to study verses 7, 8, and 9, and next time, Lord willing, we'll study verses 10 and 11 and the concept of suffering service through your spiritual giftedness. What does Peter say here in verses 7 to 9 about our service in the midst 
of being a suffering church. Let me read it for you as the setting for our time together this morning. 1 Peter 4, 7, 8, and 9. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. I see three distinct things here. Three commands, three ideas with imperatival force in the midst of the suffering church that Peter says must be a part of your Christian experience. Let me give them to you so that you can write them down and then we'll go over them in some detail. Number one, suffering service involves sound and sober prayer. That is listed for us in verse 7. Suffering service involves sound and sober prayer. Secondly, according to verse 8, suffering service involves fervent and forgiving love. Fervent and forgiving love. And thirdly, according to verse 9, suffering service involves Christian and complaint-free hospitality. Suffering service involves Christian and complaint-free hospitality. Now, if you've noticed from that outline, it's very easy to remember. The kind of service that Peter talks about here in the midst of a suffering church involves sound and sober prayer, Two S's which adjectivally describe your prayer life, sound and sober. Then two F's that describe your love for one another, fervent and forgiving. And then thirdly, two C's that describe your hospitality, Christian and complaint-free. Let's look at the first aspect of suffering service that Peter wants us to know and obey. Verse 7. Suffering service involves sound and sober prayer. He says, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now before Peter tells us about this sound and sober prayer, he prefaces this command by saying, The end of all things is near. What does that mean? Well, the answer is that Peter wants his readers to realize that there is nothing in God's eschatological timetable, his plan for the end, his plan for the consummation. There is nothing that's going to occur or needs to occur before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. That's what he's saying. From the time of the ascension of Christ until the time of the return of Christ is known as the time is near. We have begun that time. We began it when Peter himself was a part of the very inauguration of this time. It began then and it continues and no one knows when the Lord is going to return, but we do know this, we are living in the end times. He says it. The end of all things is near. Jesus, he tells these suffering Christians, could return at any moment and therefore you must be about the business of fulfilling your ethical and moral duties as a believer in Christ. He puts an eschatological spin on it. He says you better be about the work of interacting with fellow believers in a certain way because Jesus Christ is at the door. Jesus Christ is near. The Lord of the church is coming to claim His own bride, the church. And when He comes, He expects His church to be following His commands toward one another within that self-same church. It's really as simple as that. That's what Peter means. There's no difficulty in interpreting that, that phrase. 
Just like we've come through the difficulty of other phrases within this suffering context, that is not one of them. This is clear. The end of things, the consummation of redemptive history is at hand. Therefore, you must be about the business of the Lord's business. Now, someone, of course, might immediately say, but wait a minute. If you're telling me that Peter is saying that the end is near and it's therefore been 2,000 years since Peter not only wrote that and the expectation of that is to happen, then really is it true that the Lord is near? Well, first of all, that's what it says. That's what the Bible teaches. The end of all things is near. Listen to the pattern of the New Testament. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. Listen to the flavor that the writer to the Hebrews puts it. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembly of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is a day... There is a time when Jesus Christ will return to the earth. We don't know when that time is, but we know that it is, as theologians call it, the imminent return of Jesus. The imminent return. He's going to come soon. No one knows the time or the hour. The Lord knows. And I believe even the Lord Jesus Himself now knows in His ascended glory. And it will be in the twinkling of an eye the batting of an eyelash at a moment in time where man least expects it. And that's the purview of the New Testament. That's what the writer to Hebrews is saying. Look, you need to continue to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, and you should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, because what's the, what's the imperative, what's the idea? Because the Lord is coming. He's coming soon. The day is drawing near. Listen to James 5, 8 and 9. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, listen to this, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, it's not our place to say whether or not the judge is standing right at the door for 2,000 years or more. He's nevertheless standing at the door. It's ready to open. What these writers are saying is, there's nothing more to happen. There's nothing left to do, save God's redemptive plan for the last person, the elect, to come into the household of faith. And when that occurs, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, for this we know it is the last hour. It's going to come, folks. And it is true that the more years that roll on, the assumption is, well, it's either so much further off, or he's not coming at all. And that's exactly what Peter quotes some of the gainsayers in his own day in Second Peter chapter 3 when they say this, Where is the promise of His coming? All things remain as it is today. And what does Peter say? Don't think that way. Don't think that way. For the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. You'd better understand that when the Lord comes, the earth will melt with fervent heat, and the Lord, when He comes, will judge the living and the dead. That's even told to us in chapter 4, verse 5 of 1 Peter. But they will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's a very important point, beloved, very important. Every ethical imperative of the New New Testament, that is, how you should live, what you should do in response to God, every one of them is in the light of the coming of Jesus Christ. And that coming is near. Peter Davids is right when he writes in his commentary, this expectation of the imminent inbreaking of God's full and final rule conditions all New Testament teaching. 
And without grasping it, one can hardly understand the radical ethical stance taken within any of the New Testament literature. If the end is right around the corner, one should live accordingly. And that's exactly what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. With all of these things happening the way I told you, he says, what manner of man ought you to be? You see, the ethical imperative of what we do as Christians toward one another is based on the eschaton, the final consummation, the coming of Jesus Christ. He's going to come and He's going to ask for an accounting. And you must live your Christian life then with a sense of urgency. James says that our life is like a vapor. It's here and it's gone. The Old Testament speaks of it like this. Our life is like a hand breath. What is that? (sighs) That's it. That's what our life is likened to. It's here and it's gone. You say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm young. I've got many, many years left. You don't know that. None of us know that. The Lord could come at any moment. His appearing is imminent. And when He comes, He's going to ask for an accounting. And what kind of accounting will He be taken? Taking. Look at verses 7 and 11. That's what it is. And the first one is this. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The first thing that you ought to do, according to the Apostle Peter, in light of the end being near, is have the kind of prayer life that includes sound judgment and a sober spirit. That's what you should be doing as a Christian when the Lord returns to the earth. You must have a mind that is sound, he says, and a mind that is sober, which, by the way, could describe, I think, the best kind of prayer life that you can have before this Lord, this Lord of the church. You know, we talk a lot about prayer. We talk about the importance of prayer. We talk about prayer being communion with God. We, we talk about prayer being uh, laying yourself out in a prostrated condition before the Lord. You're communing with Him. You're talking with Him. You're giving Him your needs. You're interceding for others. And all of those things are true. But add the eschatological dimension and you have a sense of urgency. You have the sense, Lord, I know that You're coming soon. I must pray and I must pray urgently. And I must pray in this way, Peter says, sound judgment and a sober spirit. What do those really mean? Sound judgment. It means that you have a clear mind, a sane mind. You have your sanity about you. It may even be translated in some of your Bibles that way. You have a clear mind or a sane mind. It means that when you pray to the Lord, and I say prayer because notice in verse 7, it says you're to have this kind of mental capacity, notice, for the purpose of prayer. It's not just having sound judgment for its own sake. It's sound judgment for the purpose of prayer. So that when you pray to the Lord, you're a clear-headed thinker. You have a sane mind. We might say it this way. You've got your wits about you. You know what's going on. It means that you're tempered in your judgments. That you have a self-controlled mind. It means that you're in your right mind. It can even be translated discreet. You are able to process things in a godly way. This is a very, very prominent theme, beloved. Look in your Bibles at Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Same word, by the way, is used here. He says, Romans 12, 3, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a a measure of faith. We're to have sound judgment, and in this context, the, the most soundness of our judgment is based upon not thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. When you're praying, you understand who you are in light of who God is. You don't think of yourself as more than you are. That's what he's saying. Did you realize also that this same word, being of sound judgment, is actually one of the qualifiers that marks a potential elder 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, and then here's our word, prudent. Prudent. You're a prudent person. I like that translation. You've got a sound judging mind. You have a prudent mind. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is a memory verse for several of you. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That's our word. You have a disciplined mind. That means self-controlled. That's the kind of mind you ought to have, beloved, in the purpose of prayer, knowing that Jesus Christ is returning soon. In chapter, t- in, uh, chapter 2 of Titus 2, or excuse me, in chapter 2 of Titus, Verse 2, it says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible. That's our word. Sensible. That's what you need to be in your prayer life. Sensible. Boy, it really adds the mental dimension, doesn't it? It's not just throwing up prayers that don't get past the four walls and the ceiling. It's a prayer that's sensible. It's prudent. It's sound in its judgment. You're ready. You're ready for the Lord and His return, and you're praying accordingly. You're even saying like the Apostle John at the end of our Bibles, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's the way you're praying. You're praying sensibly. Verse 5 of Titus 2, to be sensible, it says, to women. Same idea, same word. Verse 6, likewise, urge young men to be sensible. Same idea. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly. Same word family. All telling us what Peter is telling us, and that is that in 1 Peter 4, 7, you must be sound in your prayer life. Boy, that just ratchets up our prayer life, doesn't it? How about your prayer life? Do you pray this way? Do you pray in light of the Lord's coming? Do you pray and say, Lord, give me a disciplined mind. Give me self-control. Give me sensibility. Give me prudence. And allow me to pray that way. Allow me to intercede for others in a sound, prudent, sensible way. And then notice what he also says. You must be sober with the implied, in italics, in spirit. Sound judgment, sober in spirit. And by the way, it means more than just to be not to be drunk. To be sober means not to be drunk, but it means much more than that. It it certainly means at least that. We know that, especially since Peter has just characterized the pagans, the Gentiles, in verse 3 of this chapter as those who are involved in drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties. And boy, wouldn't you see a contrast there. These people are out there drinking, they're out there carousing, they're out there involved in drinking parties, but you, believer, you be sober in your spirit. That means don't be drunk. But it means more than that. It's used other places metaphorically to refer to those who have a sobriety of mind. It's not just that you're not taking liquor to your lips, it's that you are also having the mental capacity of the sobriety of your mind. You're looking spiritually around you and you are ready. You're not sluggish. You're not intemperate. You have a moral alertness about you. Someone recently mentioned to me how they were driving, I think it was Dr. Zimmick, he was driving in Colorado with his wife and on their vacation and he came to a sobriety checkpoint. You know what that is? They, they stop all the cars and then they let the cars go through one at a time and when the policeman comes up he has a flashlight and he flashes that light if it's nighttime in your eyes and what happens when you're drunk? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happens. You say, I'm not as think as you drunk I am. <laughs> you, you, you don't have mental alertness. The light shines on your eyes and you you don't do anything because you don't have the reaction time that you otherwise need. But boy, if you're not drunk at all, and that's the case with Dr. Zimmick, you're at the sobriety checkpoint and they shine the light in your eyes and what do you do? Oh, what's happening? We're checking for drunkards. And he went on to talk to them. I'm a Christian minister. I wouldn't do that. It's a sobriety of mind. It's the, it's the spiritual sense that you're calm, 
that you're circumspect. Oh, I wish we had time to look at some of these verses that speak of this. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6. This is a great metaphor, folks. So then, let us not sleep as, as others do, but let us be alert and sober. That's our word. We're alert. We're sober. We're ready. We have the capacity. Verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. What does it mean here? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. I'm ready. By the way, this word used almost virtually synonymously with sound, sound judgment, prudent, is also a mark of a person qualified to be an elder. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate. That's how we came up with the phrase in the last, in the first part of the latter part of, of uh, the 20th century, or the, the first part of the 20th century, the temperance movement. That's where that came from. That, of course, was connected with drinking, but this is connected here with your spiritual life. An elder must be prudent and he must be temperate. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 But you be sober in all things. Isn't that what we read a moment ago? Be sober in all things. Know what you're about. Know what's going on. Don't be dulled in your senses. Peter's even told us that in chapter 1 verse 13. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Know what's going on. He even says that in chapter 5 verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Boy, if there's ever any time for you to be sober and not spiritually drunk is when Satan is prowling around like a lion ready to devour your flesh. You don't want to be drunk then. You don't want want to be off your game. You want to have your A game on then. You want to be able to say, I know what's going on. I know Satan's devices. I know his temptations. I know what he's doing. And I am having a sobriety, a circumspect life. You say all of that in the preparation of your prayer life? Yes. Boy, I love it when I hear people praying and they pray Scripture. They pray Scripture back to God. They say, Lord, we know that this is what your character says about you in the Word. We know that this is what life is according to the Scripture. We know, we know, we know. Their minds are sobered to the reality of Scripture and what it says about God. You must be on the alert, beloved. Controlled, self-controlled, sensible, prudent, calm in your prayer life, interceding for others, communing with God, even in the midst of suffering. And wouldn't they say that? Wouldn't they say that, those first century Christians? Suffering so, persecuted, at the hands of this tremendous disadvantage, this tremendous harking after the Nero God or whoever the emperor was at that time. You need to serve Him. You do not serve Jesus. Caesar is Lord, not Jesus. And you deny those things and you're under such suffering and it would come to the place where you'd say to yourself, I need to be prayed up. I need to be really prayed up. And Peter says, yes, you're right. Sound judgment. Sober in spirit. Look at verse 8. Suffering service also involves fervent and forgiving love. This is a second phrase which I think takes on imperatival force, even though it's not an imperative itself. It's really a, a clause that comes off of that verb in verse 7, be of sound judgment. But still, I believe it has the force of a command. Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. I've characterized it as fervent love in our outline point. Fervent love because that's what Peter says here. Keep fervent in your love for one another, he says. Fervent. Ectonase. Love, agapain, it's the idea of an urgent, fervent love. It means, by the way, that word ectonase, to stretch and to strain. They've even been the word used to nail somebody up on a cross. Stretching their limbs, straining, and then nailing their hands and their feet to a cross. 
That's a, that's a word picture worth the, the whole sermon this morning. Stretching and straining in urgency, fervency of your love toward one another. Boy, is that how we love? Remember now, this is not responding to pagan outsiders. This is responding in our sanctification service inside the church. Suffering's happening all around us and about us, and it's affecting us. But when we come to the body of Christ and we come for our spiritual service, we ought to have a fervent stretching and straining of love for one another. That's what he's saying. And notice, it is something that we are to do, according to Peter, above all. Above all. That's the mark of the Christian. You ought to do a study sometime of the number of times in the New Testament that either the idea explicitly or the intention implicitly of love for fellow Christians is mentioned. It is amazing the number of times. It's the mark of the Christian. And Peter says, all of this suffering around you and what must be the common denominator among you is a fervent love above all for one another. Listen to what he says in chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. You know, he takes it right out of the logistical motions, the perfunctory ways we say we love one another. He just takes the slats right out underneath our argument when he says, since you have an obedience to the truth, the truth of the gospel, it's purified your souls and it's given you a sincere love, genuine love, fervently loving, stretching and straining from the heart. Boy, somebody could say, I love, is it from the heart? Are you really loving, fervently loving, sincere love of the brethren? Chapter 2, verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. And I love this. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Boy, they were so affectionate. You know, we don't really understand that in the West. But in that time, which was West to them but certainly east of us, the idea was greet each other with a kiss of love. And you know what that meant? A kiss. Physical affection. Grabbing one another. And wouldn't that be so important? Because if you're suffering on the outside, and if you're losing loved ones to the faith, what would you want to do with each other? You'd want to huddle around. You'd want to love each other. You'd want to kiss each other. You'd want to hold each other. Not in some kind of... of evil sexual sense but in the sense of a spiritual and godly and holy love kissing and hugging and loving one another and saying i'm with you i'm for you that's what he's talking about this is this is so amazing there's a this family of words of ectenes there's an adverb that's used in acts chapter 12 verse 5 or yes 12 5 Listen to this. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. That's the same word. Stretching and straining in their prayer life for Peter because he's one of the apostles and he's in prison and the church doesn't know what to do and they're undergoing persecution and they're saying, we, Lord, don't know what to do, but we know you know what to do. Lord, answer our prayers. Fervent prayers. Fervent love. That's, that's what it's all about. It's even used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. He, he prayed fervently to the Father. Stretching and straining. Do we have that kind of love? Do we have that kind of prayer life? I, I shudder to think what my prayer life is compared to these things. This is just what a suffering Christian needs to hear. And even though you've been persecuted from the outside, you realize that when you're living in the nearness of eternity, you should therefore on the inside be involved in prudent, sensible prayer to God and for one another and above all stretching and straining to love one another with a sincere heart. Why, Peter? Why? Why should I love in this way? Notice what he says. Because love covers a multitude of sins. 
Oh, this is so marvelous. This is great truth. Marvelous. You say, how so? It only says love covers a multitude of sins. Well, it'd be marvelous if you had a multitude of sins to cover. You say, what's, what's going on? Well, think about it. Peter has just been saying throughout this whole section on suffering that if you're going to be maligned, if you're going to be criticized, if you're going to be persecuted as a Christian, you better be so because of what you do right rather than what you do wrong. Isn't that what we've been studying and learning? But that doesn't mean that you're going to live a sinless perfection. That doesn't mean that even on the outside you're always going to do it the right way. But even when you try to do with the utmost of your heart to live righteously for the pagans on the outside, when you get in on the inside, sometimes your guard is down and you don't do all that you need to do and you sin as a result because your guard isn't up and you're not doing everything that you need to do because you think maybe it's a little safer on the inside and when you sin in that way and you're going to sin, but when you do... And when you let your sin be seen on the inside, within the body of Christ, the body of believers, because they know Christ and because they know how to act toward you, they want to forgive you. That's not the outside world, folks. They don't want to do that. They want to point out your sins and they want to use it against you time and time again. And they want to say, oh, you say you're a Christian. Well, what about this? Look at this inconsistency. Look at this integrity breach. But boy, when you get on the inside... You know you're going to sin. And when you do, you want to confess it. You want to forsake it. And you want the people you've sinned against to say, I, what? Forgive you. I forgive you. And boy, your heart is parched because you've been working on the outside. You've been trying to draw people to Jesus Christ. You've been trying to respond to this pagan world. And when you're on the inside and you know you've sinned against the Lord and sinned against another person. You want to make it right. You want to confess. You want to repent. And when you do, the person you've sinned against said, love covers a multitude of sins. I forgive you. By the way, this verse and those like it, for instance, James 5.20, which commands the same thing, I think have been repeatedly misunderstood. This is not talking about not confronting believers who sin. It's not describing a certain set of sins for which you don't confront and overlook. It's not a certain method for overlooking some sins. Nothing like that at all. It is a verse that is presupposing a process that has already taken place, which has already included the seeking and granting of forgiveness between two believers. It's a summary verse. It's not a process verse. It's a concluding verse. It's not a process verse. You see, we are to confront other believers in sin. Matthew 18, 15, Galatians 6, 1 to 5. Those are process verses. Those are verses regarding going to someone who sins against you or confronting sin in general. But this verse and verses like it, like the Proverbs for which I think it came, the original Hebrew text, it is talking about a summary of what happens. Maybe we could call them concluding verses or even love verses. That's what they are. It's like this. The process has already concluded... They've sought forgiveness because of their sin against you. You've forgiven them for their sins. And now what do you do? Now what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to respond now? Here's where this verse comes in. Love covers a multitude of sins. You say, what is covering? That means that you're not choosing to use that person's sin against them anymore. That's the covering idea. That's very consistent with the Old Testament. God says, I cover your sins. Blessed is the man whose sin is covered, Psalm 32.1. It's the idea that God, in His infinite wisdom, and even in His omniscience, even though He knows our sin, even though we know that it has grieved Him, we confess it to Him, He forgives us, and He says, I will not use your sin against you anymore. Aren't you glad of that? That's what God does. And to be Godlike, according to this verse... 1 Peter 4.8 is this. I don't choose to use it against you either. You've come to me. You've confessed it. You've forsaken it. I love you. I wrap my arms around you. I tell you how much this means that you've come. And this is how I'm choosing to treat you. I'm covering it. It's not that I forget it. We don't forget. God never forgets. 
those verses in the Old Testament that say God forgets, it's not the idea that He can't remember. God remembers everything. He's omniscient. It's the idea that God chooses not to use your sin against you anymore. It's a conscious choice of the will. And here with this Christian, it's the conscious choice of their will. I am choosing to forgive you. I'm wrapping my arms of love around you. This is not going to develop a breach in our relationship. And boy, wouldn't a suffering Christian love to hear that. Boy, it's tough out there. But on the inside, I need you. I need your love. I need your covering. That's that's what it's talking about. It means that you, like your God and what He's done for you, covers your sin. You choose not to use their forgiven sin against them anymore. If you really study Proverbs 10.12, which is where I think this is being quoted from in the Hebrew text, not the Septuagint, but in the Hebrew text, that's where I think it really is talking about that kind of covering. That's why Colossians says we ought to forgive others just as Christ Jesus has forgiven us. There's the model. He chooses not to use sin against me anymore, whether at the judgment seat or even in my Christian life. He doesn't beat me over the head with it. Yes, he may chastise me, but in the end, he does not choose to use that against me judgmentally. And I choose not to do that with other believers either. Now, someone may come along and say, but but that person has hurt me repeatedly. What does Jesus tell Peter? How often should we forgive? Seventy times seven. We're to forgive. You know what that means? Love. Fervent, stretching, straining love. That's what God does. That's who God is. We're modeling a godlike life. You love them, forgive them, you choose to cover their multitudinous sins, never using their transgressions against them because you are showing bitterness and anger because they've hurt you. Boy, that's a biggie in the Christian life, isn't it? You hurt me. I'm bitter because you, you repeatedly do this, like in a husband-wife relationship. Well, if you were in the midst of great suffering... If you might be ready to lose your head for the sake of the gospel, would you still be self-focused and concerned and hurt and bitter against someone who sins against you? No, you'd be in the you'd be in the fray. You'd you'd be in the thicket. You'd be in the the very problem of your life, the saving of your life. Your focus is not on yourself. Your focus is on loving one another so that you're showing the outside world that no matter how many times you're sinned against, you forgive. Boy, that's powerful. And then he gives us a third, verse 9. Christian and complaint-free hospitality. Oh, I love this. I was talking to Pastor Todd Murray this week and he and I were talking about the service and if you haven't already figured it out, we, we actually try to get together and figure out how to work a service into one theme, one idea, one motif, songs, message, whatever it may be. And so he was asking me about that, and he said, now what are you going to preach on? And I gave him three-point quick outline, prayer, love, hospitality. And I told him, I said, you know, it's interesting to me, Todd, that in verse 7 when it says, the end of all things is near, be hospitable to one another. And you sort of say to yourself, that that just doesn't seem to have quite the ring to it that you would normally assume. You mean the end of all things is near? Evangelize, right? The end of all things is near. Preach the gospel. The end of all things is near. Be ready. Shout. Urgency. Yes. But be hospitable. You say, well, that just doesn't fit. Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. Look at it. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. You say, how is it Christian hospitality? Look at it. Be hospitable to one another. To one another. That means to fellow Christians. That's why it's Christian hospitality. And if you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is standing at the door and you have someone outside who needs to come in and lodge with you and eat a meal with you so that their needs are met, what do you say? Well, I'm really busy. I don't have a lot of food. You know, 
I, I understand that there's a hotel room down the street. Look, these Christians may have been wanting to lodge with fellow Christians to avoid somebody running after them. Someone coming against them. Someone uh, ready to take their life. And you'd want to take that brother or sister in. You'd want to nurture them. You'd want to take care of them like the Samaritan. You'd want to pay your money and you want to say, and by the way, if there's any other additional funds that you need, I'll pay you when I come back. Boy, what a commitment. This is being hospitable. It means literally the meeting of others' needs. Physical needs, lodging, meals. It's a lover of strangers. It's the sharing of your bounty with people. And do you know that this is also listed in 1 Timothy as a qualification for a potential elder? You see a pattern here? Well, what's happening in the body of Christ needs to be happening in superlative among the examples, the leaders of the church. Elders? Lance, are you living this out? Are you hospitable toward one another? Are you opening your home? Body of Christ, are you giving of your increase? Are you giving out of your sacrifice? Are you feeding people? Are you housing people? Are you taking care of people? Someone might say, well, it's sort of a different day. They have hotels now. They have other places to say, yes, that's true. But listen to Edmund Clowney. Do we need the grace of hospitality as hotels, motels, and credit cards multiply? The question is absurd in the eyes of any Christian who has offered or received hospitality in the name of Christ. The early church often met in the homes of its members. The fellowship of Christians in the setting of the home has a quality that can be duplicated nowhere else. Equally important is the function of our homes in aiding the homeless and those in crisis or trouble. In New Testament times, evangelism too went from house to house, not by organized canvassing, but by the hospitality of Christian homes. See how important it is? This is very important. Let me conclude with this. Peter David says, What it consisted of was offering to traveling Christians, including traveling teachers, prophets, and apostles, free room and board while they were legitimately in an area. The provision of hospitality was important because of both the limited means of many Christians and the questionable character of such public places as there were to stay in. It was valuable in that it tied the churches together through this mutual service and provided a means of communication among them. But even with all its value, the practice was often a costly act of love for Christians who themselves often lived on a hand-to-mouth basis. In other words, there was real sacrifice. He says, thus, Peter does not simply call for hospitality, but for it to be offered ungrudgingly. Do you see it there listed in your Bibles? Without complaint. Complaint free. He says, this term aptly captures the quiet, I don't know why we get all the travelers, or I wish Paul would move on whispered in a corner to a spouse when a family was on short rations or its housing was cramped due to a visitor. Peter urges the Christians to a level of love that would transcend such negative attitudes. He knows there will be sacrifice, but wants it made with a willing and cheerful heart. Oh my. It means sacrifice. It means service. And while all this suffering is happening on the outside, the stuff that's happening on the inside is prayer, love, and hospitality. Let me ask some of these questions as we close. What about your Christian hospitality? Do you sacrifice to serve others? Do you do it without complaint? Is it your heart's desire to give of your earthly possessions in order to be hospitable to other believers? When was the last time you fed or housed another Christian in your home in the short or long term? Would you consider taking in someone who is legitimately homeless? Have you found this ministry of hospitality refreshing or burdensome? If you found it refreshing, it was no doubt for the sake of the gospel or an opportunity to meet a fellow believer's need. If you found it burdensome, then it could be because of your complaining, murmuring attitude. What about your fervent love for the saints? 
Do you stretch and strain in your pursuit of love toward them? Are you choosing to cover their sins, not using their sins against them? Or are you focused upon yourself and how much they have injured you? If you're focused upon yourself, you'll want them to pay for how much they've hurt you and will refuse to forgive them. But if you fervently love one another from the heart, you'll be focused on how much Christ has forgiven you and therefore you'll show much love to those who sin against you. And finally, are you further praying to God and for others in a self-controlled way, being prudent and sensible in your communion with our Heavenly Father? even though there may be much maligning and criticism coming from the outside and also sin occurring on the inside, you'll be paying tribute to the triune Godhead for much endurance, sensibility, prudence, and temperance. Three verses. Three commands. Let's do it as a church with each other. Let's pray. Father, we know that this is the mandate You've given us this clear word. You've told us that this is what is to be the response of a person who names the name of Christ. You tell us that this is your will. You command these things to be done. They have the the force of an ethical and moral imperative. And all because we believe that you, Lord, are near. You're coming for us. And you're going to ask us for an accounting. May we, Lord, be faithful. Oh, let us be faithful in our prayers, in our love, in our hospitality. Lord, as we learn next time, even through our spiritual giftedness, may we serve through suffering for your glory. In Jesus' name.